Good morning. Um, on the back table, there are the cards for the Women for Truth Conference. It has the website that you can go to to sign up. That is in two weeks. And so I want to remind you that we will not meet in two weeks. It's in two weeks, right, Barb? March 3rd. It's in two weeks. We will not meet in two weeks. We will instead meet March 10th. So if you haven't marked your schedule for that, turn to the front of your notebook and cross out the March 3rd and write in March 10th. Because I just would hate for you to come here in two weeks and be all by yourself or the other person who didn't mark their notebook. So, yeah, be sure you make note of that. And if you want to go to Women for Truth, you can sign up online. It is the same day as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but it ends before Guess Who's Coming to Dinner dinner begins. So if you're not hosting, it doesn't really affect you at all. If you're hosting, then you need a really nice family who will serve and get your house ready for guests who's coming to dinner while you're at Women for Truth, maybe. Okay, so we won't meet again until March 10th, so that make, means we've got a three-week break, and so you can call it our spring break. And I'll confess that I looked at the homework this morning and I thought, oh, wow, this is really long. So just look at it as an opportunity to work on over more time. Instead of waiting until three weeks from now, pull it out next week and uh, maybe read it today before you tuck it away in your notebook so that you're thinking about it and um, get the most out of that assignment um, and it doesn't overwhelm you in 20 days on Friday night. Um, okay, well go ahead and we got your notebook there in front of you. Turn it over to the back. We're going to start by taking a look at our Wellspring purpose and the disciplines. Now, back when I was working outside our home before we had kids, the popular thing, the in thing, was for businesses to have a mission statement. And I don't know, maybe they still do, but I'm just not in that world at all anymore. Um, and, but the idea was that you needed to know why you existed, what your bigger purpose was as an organization. And I always hated that. I don't like being pushed to think about the big picture. <laughs> like, just give me my little job, and I'll do it, and then I'll be fine. I don't need to know why we exist. Um, <laughs> but I've come to see there's a problem with that, and it's because if I reduce my purpose to something really small, um, even though I'm part of a big organization, then I become really self-centered. I get really territorial. I don't really care about helping anybody else because I just want to get my little thing done, right? And ultimately, the whole organization is less effective because everybody's just looking out for their little corner of the universe instead of keeping their eyes fixed on what the bigger purpose is, what all those little pieces are supposed to be coming together and accomplishing. And our Wellspring purpose is really helpful for the same reason. So let's go ahead and read it. In fact, let's read it aloud together. I think Lori had us do that. I like that. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Now, what would it look like if we were to take a small view of our purpose in the body of Christ? Well, one thing that could happen is we might take something like Discipline 1 and we would only see its value to me. I would only see its value to me. You would see just its value to you. Now, discipline one is about the heart. It says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Now, you know I believe in discipline one. We all need to be practicing and cultivating that discipline of shepherding our heart to God in his word every day. Um, 
in Christ, we've been given new hearts, we've experienced a new birth, and as a result, God's word makes us grow. 1 Peter 2.2 says, like newborn babies, long, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, how does a newborn long for milk? Often. And is there anything that they want more than that pure milk? You can be sure that that baby will let everybody else know how much they long for that milk. And they're not going to be satisfied for very long with a substitute. When he wants milk, that is all that he'll take. And that's why we make such a big deal in Wellspring about not just checking off a box with our reading plan because that kind of reading isn't longing for the word. Longing for the pure milk of the word means that we come to the word pleading with God to meet us there and to not let us be satisfied with anything less and asking him to remind us afresh of his greatness and how badly we need him so that we will love him more and grow in our obedience and our devotion and our fruitfulness. And we plead with him for help to see with better clarity, with better understanding, some aspect of the gospel, what he's done to draw us to himself through Jesus Christ. And when we're not longing, then we cry out for a heart that does long for the, war, for the word, and we read anyway. Because the word creates an appetite for the word. Right? The more we're in the word, the more we want the word. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to penetrate the dullness and hardness and foolishness of our self-sufficiency. The more we take God's word in, the more we long for it. But as great as that is, and as fruitful as that can be, think how limited discipline one is if we take it away from the bigger wellspring purpose. And we only are concerned with what it does for us. The wellspring purpose reminds us why we shepherd our hearts. It says, so that we live out the gospel. Now, where do we do that? Well, most importantly, first and most, we do that in our home and with our family. That's discipline, too. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And when I think about what that looks like, because we had that lesson in Proverbs 14 right at the end of the year, a lot of times some of those qualities are what come to my mind. I think about um, the Proverbs 14 woman who builds up her home and that she was industrious and that she was peaceable. Now, industriousness really talks about living out the gospel in what we do, being diligent, self-disciplined, serving those around us, being faithful with the responsibilities of our homes. And it's not just the oldest woman in the household, right? As a woman, we have an opportunity to serve the other people in our household by serving there and working there. And as moms, we can train our children to be diligent with those responsibilities. Wherever we live, we are to be a home worker. We're going to talk about that in our Titus lesson in a bit. But the second character quality, that being peaceable or uncontentious, really speaks primarily to how we shepherd relationships in our home. Are we gentle? Are we patient? Do our lives reflect the transforming effect of the gospel? Do our words reflect that the gospel is the greatest treasure we have to give to those around us. Now, when that is not the case, the Lord 
and his kindness is showing us a place where we need to grow. So shepherding our hearts so that we can minister to those in our household is really good. It's really valuable. It's important. We're going to talk a lot about it today. But again, that fruit is far too small if we pursue it apart from our greater purpose. And what is the greater purpose behind Discipline 1 and Discipline 2? What greater good can come from having well-shepherded hearts and being faithful in our households? Well, Discipline 3 says, With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. The Wellspring Purpose says this strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at John 17, part of the lesson, and it said that as we live in unity with one another, displaying the self-giving love of God within the body of Christ, it shows the world something of who our Savior is. God's love, God loves to use his church to display himself and to draw people to himself and to send people out to proclaim the gospel and establish more churches which will display the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of the people in that church. It's about the glory of God. So that's how the Wellspring Purpose can spur us on in the Wellspring Discipline so that we're fully participating in what God is doing to bring glory to himself through the church. So persevere, keep growing, and keep pursuing the disciplines. They're disciplines. We never graduate from them. We never quit having to work at them. There's always going to be room for growth in them, but persevere because it's important. Okay, open up your Bibles to Titus. This brings us to our lesson. Um, We're going to study... Titus today. Eventually we're going to focus on chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, which specifically address older and younger women. And this is a wonderful book of the Bible, and it's a wonderful passage, and we need to understand it and embrace it. But I need to confess that I haven't always had warm, fuzzy feelings about this passage. And that's just my own sin. The Lord has been so kind, and as I've had the opportunity to study it in its bigger context of the whole book of Titus, I've come to see that most of my ambivalence toward this passage um, was not grounded in the Word of God, but it was grounded in my own misconceptions. And so just in case anybody else has some of the same misconceptions I did, I just want to lay some of those out first and hopefully just remove any obstacles to understanding and benefiting from what God has for us here. So a few things that this passage is not. Um, Titus 2 is not just a label like being a Girl Scout. Okay, it doesn't describe a group of women in the church who have it all together, and then the rest of us just don't. Okay, that's not what we find in the book of Titus. Um, and now, uh, the second is that it's not talking to just a small niche of women in a particular season of life. It's not just talking to women who grew up with a mom who was a really good homemaker. Um, it's not just talking to women who grew up in a Christian home. We'll get to the context of Titus in a minute, but this letter was written to a baby church. They didn't even have elders yet. So none of these women grew up with a godly Christian mother who showed them how to do this. This is Paul's instruction for Titus to train all of the women in the church. 
Um, another thing that this uh, passage is not is it's not a program. Now, there are lots of programs that bear the name of Titus 2, and that's fine to name a program that, but that's not what this passage is. Um, and then finally, this is probably one of my biggest stumbling blocks, because for years, I just looked at it, it as a to-do list. Now, Sarah graciously prayed for us as we were coming in this morning that we'd all leave that to-do list behind us and be here ready to learn. And I thought, how appropriate. No wonder I didn't like the passage if I thought it was a to-do list, because I already have plenty of things to do that I can't get to. I don't just need 11 more. Um, and, and some of the dangers of looking at it as a to-do list is that the biggest problem is that it doesn't address our hearts, right? It just talks about what we do instead of the kind of women that God calls us to be. And if we treat it like a to-do list, we're probably either going to be really discouraged because <laughs> we're just going to always fall short or we're going to become really self-righteous because we are able to sort of frame them in terms that on some level we think we measure up to if we compare ourselves to ourselves. But either way, it's really self-focused, and there's nothing in the book of Titus to tell us that we're supposed to be really self-focused, okay? So that's not what Titus is about. That's not what Titus 2 is about. So we're going to start by taking a look at the big picture. And we're going to spend a long time on this, and I um, will just tell you that I didn't put very much. You've got this much space in your notes, and we're going to spend a long time on just looking at the whole book of Titus. So if you need more paper, maybe turn it over to the very back for more space to take notes. But I think it's just so helpful to really ground ourselves in the whole book so that when we come to the passage, it's really clear how we are supposed to understand it, why it's important, and how we're going to be able to do it. So Titus, the book of Titus, is a letter that was written by Paul to Titus. Now Paul had taken the gospel to Crete with Titus, and he'd left Titus there. And chapter 1, verse 5 tells us why. Go ahead and look at that with me in your Bible. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders to every city as I directed you. So that's why Paul left Titus there, to set in order what remains. The church is not where it needs to be on Crete. And Titus needs to appoint elders. Paul is concerned for the church. Now in verses 6 through 9, he goes on to describe the elder qualifications And he concludes in verse 19 by saying that an elder must be a man who is um, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, why would an elder need to be able to exhort and refute? Well, we begin to find out when we look at verse 10. And it says, for, that means because... Because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Now listen to this. Listen to why they must be silenced. It's because they are upsetting whole families. Let's see. I'm sorry, I didn't finish the verse. They're upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. See, these men are greedy, and their influence is being felt at the household level. Now let's read verse 16, where it sort of summarizes what these men were like. It says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So there's false teaching everywhere, 
and it's impacting families and households. Families are being upset. So that's what they need to refute. But what are they to exhort? Well, we um, saw in one nine that elders have to both be able to refute and exhort, and we start to see what they need to exhort in chapter 2. Um, so look at verse 1, but it begins, that means we have a contrast here. Those other guys are teaching what's wrong, but you, Titus, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Um, so chapter 2 gives us Paul's teaching strategy for Titus so that he can address the damage caused by these false teachers at the household level. And here's what Titus is going to speak for sound doctrine. Verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Okay, talk to the older women. He's going to work his way through all the different people in the body, all the people who make up households. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? That they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. That's why. That's why the older women need to teach the younger women. Verse 6, he moves on to instructing the younger men. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine and dignified. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. See, this is still connected back to those who are causing problems at the household level. Verse 9, bond slaves, those were part of the household in the Roman Empire urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So that is Paul's teaching strategy. Address all these kinds of people who you find in the church, who make up households, um, and all of this is so that the critics can be silenced. And what's ultimately at stake in the church and outside the church um, through the behavior of these people, he just kept giving us throughout the passage. Verse 5, he said, so the word of God is not dishonored. Verse 8, so the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, so they'll adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So what is at stake? It's the glory of God and his word, which has the gospel, crown jewel of it all, And our lives affect how others see that. That is what's at stake. Now, how is this possible? How is it possible for them to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect through their behavior? Well, this um, the chapter ends with showing us how, telling us how. Here's how they're going to do it. Um, It says it's what's in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, "For the grace of God has appeared." That is how they're going to do this, and that's how we're going to do this. Um, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So how do we live this way? How are we going to be reverent in our behavior and not slanderous? How are we going to do that? It's through the grace of God that has appeared to us and brought salvation to us. And it instructs us 
to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously. That's how we can do this. Verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. See, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to the gospel. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The gospel, the true gospel, the complete gospel, is powerful. And it must not be reduced just to something that happened in the past when we got saved or to something that's going to happen in the future when we go to be with Jesus forever in heaven. Throughout the book of Titus, Paul is making this connection between the gospel truth of God's word and godliness. And so we're going to just take we're going to just take a jet trip through the book of Titus because I want you to see how it's just over and over. You begin by seeing it in uh, chapter 1 verse 1 where Paul introduces himself. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Now, in 116, we already saw that one of the concerns with the false teachers is that this was not true of them. In verse 16, we saw that they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. They say they have the truth, but there is no godliness. And then we just saw in chapter 2 that when Paul tells Titus to teach sound doctrine, he tells him to teach truth, he follows that by instructions for godliness by everyone in the church for everyone in the church. And then again, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, we saw truth, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and then it was followed by instructions in godliness, in verse 12, where he says, instructing us to deny ungodliness, and so forth. Verse 14, more truth. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And that good deeds, again, is talking about godliness. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 3. He just continues, he starts chapter 3 with continuing instruction for godly living. Um, Verse 1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now why? Why do they need to be godly? Well, it's because of the truth that he gives in verse 3. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Is that truth? Yeah. Yeah, we need to understand the truth of what we were before God saved us. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, Verse 4, but, more truth, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You see, there's no hint here of works-based righteousness. This is not godliness that earns us righteousness. There's no way to conclude that godliness is what earns God's favor here. But it's according to his mercy. More truth, right? By the washing of regeneration... And renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, 
we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you want to know how to preach the gospel to yourself, this is a great passage to turn to because it includes our sinfulness. It talks about our salvation, past, when we were washed, the washing of regeneration, present, being renewed by the Holy Spirit, future, becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It has all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It has a bunch of God's attributes. It talks about his kindness and his grace, his love. It calls him our Savior. See, this is the gospel truth that produces godliness. And that's our hope. We were just like those ungodly guys in chapter 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 describes us before we were saved. But God did save us. And for Paul, this relationship between gospel truth and godliness is inseparable. He doesn't allow any space between them. He doesn't give us any room to think that the way we live earns any kind of righteous standing before God, but he also doesn't give us any room for thinking that the genuine knowledge of the truth can ever exist apart from godliness or a growth in godliness. Truth leads to godliness. But also don't miss that throughout this, this godliness is something that has to be taught. It has to be learned. These things are all true. This gospel produces godliness in those who've been transformed by it, but that godliness still has to be taught and learned. And that's why we're here, right? We need one another to help us pursue this godliness that the gospel produces. Okay. I want to just go ahead and, and keep reading in Titus chapter 3 because we, we really got the gospel there in uh, 1 through 6, uh, 1 through 7. But verse 8, I just really love because he, again, just brings these things back together. This is a trustworthy statement, this gospel that he just gave out. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Why? So that those who believe God may be careful to engage in good deeds. So they'd be godly. These things are good and profitable. For men, See, 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has provided everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. And so that's why we talk so much about Discipline 1. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, remembering grace truths, drawing near to God through his word. Because the gospel has the power to transform us, to make us godly, so that... Our families and households are protected. That was the concern of Paul and Titus. So the church is strengthened. Paul is concerned about the church in the book of Titus. And that ultimately, God is glorified as the transforming power of his word and its crown jewel, the gospel, are put on display in the way we live. That honors God and that honors his word. And none of that is unique to a particular season of life, is it? See, Paul addresses the women in the church. So, of course, he's going to address issues related to being a wife, being a mom. But even if you live alone, your home and family need to be protected, right? Maybe even more so because you don't have anybody else there maybe to help you evaluate what you're letting in. And so we're going to see that Paul is concerned with the kind of women that we are. And that applies to every season of life. When we study older women, we can't check out just because we don't think we're old yet. 
Because all of us are older than somebody, right? (laughs) And this is what we should all be aiming for and growing in. Because this is what the gospel produces in women who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So, when we park ourselves right here in the book of Titus, we see um, how to be godly. It's by God's grace in the gospel, through the truth that leads to godliness. We saw that from beginning to end in the book of Titus. And we see why it matters. Because this is the way that Paul gives for women to protect their families, to be part of protecting families and households, and to strengthen the church and to honor God's word. Okay, I hope that that helps you as much as it helps me. But that context is what helps us not to look at this as a to-do list. So we're going to take a look now at Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, and find out what that godliness looks like. All right, let's read the passage again. Beginning in verse 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. And there at the top of your notes, you see how we can summarize this passage. The gospel is honored through transformed older women training transformed younger women. If we are women whose lives are transformed by the gospel and our hearts are aligned to honor the gospel, then this is what the gospel produces in us. But we need to learn to live this way, right? We saw that. It has to be instructed and taught and learned. So Titus 2 tells us that we need to be growing in godliness and we are to be involved in one another's lives. That's one of the ways we learn. Our relationships with each other as women are important. They're important. So we need to know and embrace and align our lives with all of these gospel implications. So that brings us to what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So let's first of all just figure out what in the world is an older woman. Well, the text does not indicate a specific age range, and commentators speculate that it could be referring primarily to women whose children are grown. Um, But, as we already said, all of us are older than somebody. And so these qualities are something that all of us need to be growing in and cultivating. Those of you who are youngest here, I hope you know how much the little girls at church look up to you. They admire you. They respect you. You have a generational responsibility, even in your teens, to live this way so that the little girls grow up admiring godliness. And as we get older, that just continues. Each season brings new perspectives that need to be shared with younger women. We all need to be growing and displaying what the gospel has done in us and passing that on to those who are younger, both in our homes and in the church. So what does that gospel produce? Well, first we see uh, that we are to be reverent in our behavior. And the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It means being set apart and holy. Priests were set apart. They were to draw near to the presence of God in the temple. And Paul doesn't mean here that she's a priestess, but that everything she does 
is done with a view towards worshiping God. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. She is to see her life as sacred, set apart. Now, how do we grow in that? Reverence doesn't just happen, right, just because we get older. We have to be committed to being in the Word, to being in the presence of God. That's discipline one. A reverent woman understands and lives as a woman who seeks to um, live a life that is set apart. And a reverent woman is a doer of the Word, not just a hearer. She's obedient to the Word, and she's growing in that obedience. As the truths of the gospel penetrate our shepherded hearts, we will grow in reverent love for God. And holiness will overflow increasingly into every aspect of our life. It's that aroma of Christ we talk about. Now, reverent behavior isn't a popular character trait to aspire to in our culture, right? I mean, you just don't hear about being reverent out there. It kind of sounds old-fashioned. But God's word says that we are to be reverent. It's what the gospel intends to produce in us. So, is that our desire? To be reverent women? Set apart women concerned for holiness in our own life? In our home? In our church? Now, this first quality, being reverent in behavior, it might be functioning like an overarching quality, kind of like when Paul uses the term above reproach for elder qualifications, and then he goes on to list what those qualifications are. Um, so Paul says we must be reverent in our behavior, and then he goes on to list what that looks like. So after reverent in behavior, we see not malicious gossips. We are not to be malicious gossips or slanderers. The Greek word here is diabolos, and it means devil. It means devil. He is the one who accuses, who slanders. He's the one who slanders us in the presence of God, and he's the one who slanders God to us. Now, when I hear that, that's just really sobering. It just raises the seriousness of gossip to a whole new level. This word is used 34 times in the New Testament as a title for Satan. And it's what we are warned against. Gossip is serious, and we are not to engage in it. We're not to repeat vicious gossip or to be backbiting. We're not to be, we are, sorry, we are to be women who control our tongue. And we can't get rid of gossip by just picking the leaves off the weed, right? That doesn't get rid of a weed. If you want to get rid of a weed, you've got to dig out the root. And the same is true for gossip. And Matthew 12, 34 tells us what the root of our words is. It's, it says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So what accusations might we be entertaining in our hearts that might overflow into gossip and slander? Well, these are just a few things to think about. Examine yourself, and maybe you would think of other things to ask. But it could be judging others' motives without ever even asking them or assuming the worst. It could be keeping a record of wrongs. It could be mulling over someone else's shortcomings. See, when we do these things, when we think that way, we are accusing. 
We're accusing people for whom we should be advocating. So 1 John 2, 1 says that Jesus does. He's our advocate. We can advocate for people in prayer. We should be pleading for the blood of Jesus to be applied to them or thanking God that it already has been applied to them. So we need to ask ourselves, are we concerned with how we're using our words in our households or about our households to others? Are we concerned with our words and the effect of our words in email, Facebook, phone calls, copy chat? I sinned with my words right before church a few weeks ago, welcoming a new family. Sat down and had a sermon on repentance. (laughs) It was great. I got to go seek their forgiveness after the service. Sometimes it seems like that's the time when we're just ready to sit right in the middle of trying to serve. And God is gracious because he paid for that at the cross and we can repent. But that's why we have to get to the root of why we say what we say. We get to the root and repent repent of what's at the root of it. Rooting out slander, gossip, accusations. It requires self-control in what we think, in what we say, and in what we're willing to hear, right? That's where sometimes it's the hardest place to fight gossip. So we can seek the Holy Spirit's help. His fruit in your life includes self-control so that we can turn away from malicious gossip. A reverent woman is one who is far from being charged with or having a reputation of being a gossip. She's trustworthy. Okay, so that brings us to the third trait. Verse 3 we read, she's not malicious gossip, or not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. They're linked with that word nor. These are both stated in the negative. So there's a connection between them. You see that right there before enslaved? It says nor enslaved. So think about this. When one has too much to drink, self-control can easily be negotiated away. And one area where that is seen is the tongue. And that's what we just talked about. The effects of alcohol can cause one to lose restraint over her tongue. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, although this probably doesn't even need to be said, but if you are below the drinking age in our culture, I mean, in our, in our society, then God's word calls you to submit yourself to that. So it's not even an issue if you're under, the, under that age. But if you are over that age, um, Paul nowhere totally forbids wine, but in multiple places he does condemn drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin. And the word enslaved, where it says enslaved to much wine, is a term of bondage. Now, why warn the women about this in particular? And Paul only gives four instructions specifically to older women, and this is one of them. Isn't that interesting? Well, it might be because a woman might be tempted to turn to alcohol to deal with life struggles. She's tired, she's stressed, overwhelmed, she's hurt, she's angry, she just wants some relief. And sadly, the numbing effect is only temporary, and if that's where she turns over and over again, she may become enslaved. And of course, wine is not the only thing that can enslave. Titus 3.3 describes us before we were Christ's followers. We already read it. 
It says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. But in Christ, we've been set free. We're his slaves now. So if we are relying on or enslaved to anything for comfort other than Christ, then we need to turn from those things, fight the flesh, put to death the deeds of the flesh by walking in the Spirit. Now, we already saw that drunkenness is sin. But just a word of wisdom. If you drink, be careful with your use of alcohol. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's profitable. If it's flowing freely, frequently, it's just worth evaluating. If you're not sure, ask somebody who will help you evaluate your heart and your motives. Think about the influence that it has on how you shepherd your heart, about the influence that your use of alcohol has on others, how it impacts your gospel witness in your household, in your church, with younger women, like we're looking at here in Titus 2. Can you say, follow me as I follow Christ in the way that you use alcohol? If you drink, are you seeking to glorify God in your use of alcohol? A reverent woman is a woman who shepherds her heart to find her fulfillment, her joy, and her comfort, and her peace in her Savior. That is the implication of the gospel in a woman's life. Do you see how this is not a to-do list? This is about who we are. It's about our hearts. This kind of woman is equipped to give hope to young women, to testify that Jesus really is everything we need. He really is. And that we can train our souls to find that satisfaction in him. Well, finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good, literally teaching what is noble and excellent, what's holy, godly. Now, where does that come from? Well, from the Word, right? Where else are we going to go? The Word is what gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just about giving our opinions or experiences, although there are times that that can be really helpful. But we need to be women who point others to God's Word and then encourage them to be obedient to it, to be transformed by it. This isn't necessarily a formal kind of teaching, like standing here together. Most of the time, it's going to be just one woman with another. It's making the most of our friendships. And it includes our words as well as our example. So, to evaluate overall how we're growing as older women, here are a few questions we can ask. We can think about these in terms of how we are growing, not just a snapshot of a given, given moment, but what it looks like in our lives over time, how these qualities are increasing. So are we aware of the example that we're setting? Are we growing in a sense of reverence, of giving God glory in every part of our life? Are we growing in using God's word to guide our thinking? Are we turning away from gossip? and speaking what is good? Do we seek our rest and comfort in Jesus himself? Are we growing in that? See, this kind of a woman can be trusted to teach what is good to young women. And that brings us to number two on the outline, where we learn what transformed older women must train the young women to be. 
So verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now, encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. You get the sense of ongoing influence. Now, when we're in the position of being a younger woman, we may not always think that we need to be trained or advised, right? <laughs> I have a friend, and when I met her, it did, she's actually older than I am, but she was always asking questions. I mean, just good, probing, penetrating questions. She was intentional about asking those questions so that she could benefit from the things that the Lord had taught other women. And her example instructed me on how to be teachable and how to benefit from the godly older women in my life. I mean, it's just a joke to think I don't need that, right? So why would I not ask? The gospel is what enables us to be teachable and humble and to ask godly older women for help in becoming the kind of woman described here. Now, when I was younger, I looked at Titus 2 as a call to go and find that perfect Titus 2 woman for me. Right? She had to be out there somewhere, and I was going to go find her. (laughs) But Christ has placed us in a body, right? We have one another. Now, sometimes through the most unexpected women, the Lord has taught me lessons I wouldn't have gone looking for. Sometimes it might just be a few conversations. Sometimes it's a woman's example. But the important, Titus 2 shows us that whatever form it takes, that cultivating these meaningful relationships with women in the body is important and it's valuable. And just think God ties it to protecting homes and strengthening the church and honoring his word. It's just a big deal. There's a lot tied to it. Now let's read verses 4 and 5. We just read about uh, what the older women needed to be so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. So as older women, we are to train and advise the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. These first two, to love her husband and love her children, address the gospel's influence that a married woman has on her closest relationships. In the Greek, literally, they are husband lover, husband lover, and children lover. It describes who the woman is, not just what she does. So let's take a look at what it means to be a husband lover. So in a married woman's life, this is a priority. And it can be taught. It can be learned. This is a love that's not based on emotion. It means choosing to pursue devotion to our husband and to cherish him, to be friends with him. It's a tender affection that overflows from first loving Christ. It's lavishing God's grace that's been lavished on you, on him. And each wife must learn to love her own husband. That means you need to get to know him. Study him. Ask him, how can I bless you as his helpmate? And marriage is a gift. And there are lots of things that make marriage unique. But there is one thing, biblically, that sets marriage apart from all other relationships. And that is a gift, too. It's not just a gift to your husband. 
it's a gift to you. If you're single, it's a gift that's only for marriage. And you love your future husband, if or when you marry, by saving it as a gift that you will only experience with him at that time, with him. It's only to be experienced with your husband when he's your husband. And if we're married, it's to be savored as a gift, to be received and enjoyed as a gift from God. Do you see it as a gift? Sometimes we don't. I think years can go by in marriages without seeing intimacy as a gift to the wife as much as it is to the husband. We can easily see it as a duty, a burden, a responsibility. The last thing on our to-do list. But it's a gift. It's a gift from God. The giver of all good things that a husband and wife get to enjoy together. Now this can be a real opportunity for shepherding our hearts to right thinking. Maybe a change of thinking. Because there's just a lot of things that compete, right? We get tired. There's a lot to do in a day. We can be exhausted and distracted. And that's part of learning to be sensible. That's another Titus 2 trait that we'll talk about in a moment. But by faith, we can choose to embrace this as the gift that it is. And honor the God who gave the gift by enjoying it with thankfulness with our husband. See, the gospel transforms us and enables us to be women who can and will love our husbands. The power of the gospel's work in us doesn't rely on feelings, but rather on the reality that this kind of love can be learned because of the gospel's power and implications in us. That is the power of the gospel in a transformed life. And that can even happen, like in Paul's day, in an arranged marriage. That was the culture he was speaking into. To older women, this is the kind of gospel-centered love that we are to help younger women cultivate. Now, what about when we're single? Well, Carolyn McCulley, I quoted her in our last lesson, she shared some of these thoughts. First of all, it's what we saw, what we talked about in the last lesson, that all of us need to understand God's design for marriage because we all have the opportunity to encourage one another to love our husbands, even if we're not married right now. See, it's God's word that equips you to encourage another woman. It's not, it's not your experience. It's God's word. And if God should bring the gift of marriage to you, you love your future husband right now by developing a biblical perspective on love and marriage and a wife's role. See, what you sow now is part of God's design to bless your husband, not to mention to bring glory to God, no matter what your marital status is. And one way, I think, for single women in particular, that you can really guard your heart to love your husband is to really guard your thought life about men. See, if we shepherd our hearts in such a way, if we don't shepherd our hearts, and men just become something that we try on for size as potential husbands in our mind, maybe run the names together and see how it sounds. <laughs> yeah, see, because you did that too, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, if a guy is just nice, right? He's just godly. He's just polite. He's just being what a godly man should be. We can be so quick to jump onto that and say, oh, I wonder. 
And what we're doing in that is we're cultivating in our own hearts and minds that men are out there to service us. That that husband who comes along someday, he needs to make me happy, right? He needs to be a good match to me. If we cultivate a heart and a mind, we shepherd our hearts to look at men as brothers in Christ. What do you want for a brother in Christ? What do you want for a sister in Christ? You want them to grow. You want them to shepherd their hearts with God's word, right? You want them to be diligent to fight sin with the gospel. You want them to be fruitful and caring for their households and living out the gospel where they live and in their church. You want them to have an earnestness to see those people around them one to the gospel, right? That's what you want to see in them. That's what you're going to encourage them in. What better preparation to be a godly wife? To be ready to, prepare, to encourage a man like that. So as a single woman, you can still be intentional about loving your husband. God brings you one someday. Well, that brings us then to the next one, children lovers. And the most obvious application to this, with this would be mothers. But since we were just talking about applications for those who are single, let me just ask, can any woman be a children lover? See, there are probably children around you that you can love with whom you can share the gospel, your time, your life, maybe nephews, nieces, neighbors, children here at church, grandchildren. Give it some thought. How can you be a children lover, even if you're not a mother? Well, as we saw with a husband lover, this can also be taught. I just hope that encourages you. It encourages me. (laughs) It's selfless. It's affectionate. It's learning to train our children in light of God's grace. We are learning with all these things, right? And I think especially with the idea of loving our children, it's important to remember that it's a process. We have children who are 16, 17, and 19, and I'm still learning how to love them, how to live out the gospel with them. And if anything, time has only produced less confidence in myself and more confidence in the Lord, right? And that's evidence of the gospel at work. That's a good thing. Well, loving our children biblically means first and most that we're women who rely on God's grace. And that means that we're growing just being gracious moms as a result of shepherding our own hearts so that we are able to soak our kids' lives with God's word and his gospel. It means showing our kids how much we love God. It's teaching them how to live, and it's rescuing them from their sinful behavior with godly discipline. Now, what are some ways that we might be unloving to our children without even realizing it? Well, it's not loving to overindulge our children, to ignore their sin, or to try to buy their affection or their compliance with treats and promises. It's not loving to be inconsistent, basing our discipline more on our own mood or convenience rather than on their need to be trained. It's not loving to only discipline wrong behavior without teaching right behavior and giving them an opportunity to practice that right behavior. Again, we're talking about the direction that we're growing in here, right? We're going to keep learning. We need to keep growing in this. We're not talking about perfection. But it's not loving to train good behavior without using that training to point them to biblical truth about God and our need for him and the preciousness of what Christ has done on the cross. 
We are loving our children when we help them understand how our standards reflect God's standards. The why, the moral why, behind the behavior we're teaching them. And it's also not loving to respond to our children's sin with our sin. Now, as I share those, I will be the first to plead guilty. I am guilty of unbiblical parenting. All of these at one time or another. Certainly, being inconsistent, responding sinfully to sin with my own impatience and anger. And if you are saying that with me, we have to say even louder that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christ Jesus died in our place, and he set us free from sin, and he redeemed us from every lawless deed. We saw that in Titus 2.14, right? Not if, but when we sin against our children, even if it's in response to their sin, we need to confess it and ask their forgiveness and share with them our hope in the gospel. This kind of love is costly. It's hard. It's hard. It takes a lot of time. It's not convenient. It takes practice. You have to learn how to do this, and you're going to keep on learning it. And if you're anything like me, most of the time you're going to learn by doing it wrong. But in the process, we learn to look to our Heavenly Father more and more, and we cry out to Him for help, and we search His Word for wisdom. And as we continue to learn and grow in shepherding our own hearts and shepherding their hearts, our love for Christ and His Gospel will keep growing. And we will have the awesome joy of teaching our children about the greatness of our God and His salvation. And I am just so encouraged that so many of you are doing this. Well, let's take a look at number three, sensible. Being sensible means letting the gospel impact our minds. It's being self-controlled. I think the ESV translates it self-controlled. Having a sound mind, being thoughtful, rather than basing our decisions on emotion or impulse, which takes heart shepherding. As we practice being of sound mind, being sensible, we learn to take our thoughts captive and replace them with truth. Being sensible also includes being wise with our commitments in order to keep our household relationships a priority so that we have the time to be faithful there and the energy and the focus. If we're not purposeful and sensible, we can be tempted to resent those relationships and responsibilities. Being sensible means letting God's grace impact our priorities to his priorities as we're purposeful in how to invest our time, money, attention, opportunities, abilities, everything, every part of life. Well, let's take a look at pure. Pure means holiness of life. It means being set apart, living a life of repentance, walking with Christ, one day at a time. The gospel produces holiness in every season of a woman's life. Holiness has a purifying influence on our thoughts, our words, and our actions. The focus here is not just a bunch of external rules, You have to do this. You can't do that. But the focus is on our heart attitude 
and our affections. What is it that we love? It reflects an inner longing to honor God in all that we do. So I want to ask, are you aware of the impurities that you might be tempted by? What tempts you? Are you tempted to use impure speech, maybe a different vocabulary, depending on who you're with? Are you ever tempted to dress in a way that would cause a man to stumble in lust? Nourishing our hearts generously with the gospel is the best way to cultivate affections for what is pure and to expose areas where repentance is needed. Okay. Halfway through this list of seven things. Remember, it's not a to-do list. It's not a to-do list. What's the point? The gospel has come, and it's a gospel that produces godliness, and every member of the body of Christ has a unique has unique areas of opportunity for displaying what the gospel has done in us so that households are protected and the church is strengthened and God's word is honored. Okay, that's the big picture. We don't want to lose sight of that. We have such a privilege here. So now let's move on and talk about being workers at home. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is discipline two. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household describes a woman who has a heart for her household who understands the value of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. It's not just a season of life. It's still about our heart. Now, why is the household so important? If you survey the New Testament, you'll find that households are noted for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and even refreshing the saints in prison. The home is important to God's work in the church, and as women, we have a special responsibility. We don't want our homes to be hindrances to the work or reputation of the gospel, but rather we want them to bring honor to God's word and to be useful to the church. And that's what happens when we are faithful in our homes to nurture and serve those who live there. Like we said before, that we are filling our homes with the aroma of Christ. So what does the work of a household include? Well, for a married woman with children at home, the home is where she loves and nurtures her family. And we already said that takes time. It means choosing to find contentment in helping our husband and shepherding our children. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires, learning diligence in managing the many tasks. And there are seasons when the work of the home, leave, it leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. But if we shepherd our hearts well during those seasons, they can just be a fertile soil of preparation for fruitful ministry in future years when there is more time and availability for relationships and service for those outside our home. Now sometimes, for a season, under well-thought-out circumstances, a couple might find it in the best interest of the family to have the wife working outside the home. But that decision should be made carefully and with consideration for the fact that this characteristic of a woman isn't negotiable. Just, just like being pure or kind. They're not negotiable, right? Being a home worker isn't negotiable. There needs to be a clear way for any woman 
to be a home worker. If she's married, working outside the home. If she's single, working outside the home. Or if she's home full time, where there are still things that can take us away from being home workers, right? Being overcommitted or lazy, self-serving, easily distracted. See, understanding the value that God places on our role as home workers is so helpful. It helps us understand the importance of cultivating a heart for the work and ministry of the home. And it helps us to evaluate our priorities and our commitments on a heart level so that we grow in our availability to serve and love others through our role as a worker in our home. And it can be really helpful or even necessary to ask our husbands if we're married or our parents if we live with them to help us and lead us in evaluating these priorities so that we can be diligent as workers in our homes. Being a worker at home is a privilege. So if you struggle with seeing the value and joy in that, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for your home. If you're young and used to live with your parents, you have a great opportunity to cultivate this heart of a home worker right now. What a gospel testimony that is. That's not what you see with your peers, is it? No. If you are married, I would encourage you to sit down with your husband, even if you don't have children, and listen to the build message. I think the link to it might be in your notes. It was from December 3rd, 2011, where Scott taught the men on these verses. It could just be really helpful to you and your husband so that you have unity and understanding how important this is. Well, that brings us to kindness. Now, you've probably heard the question before. If you have a cup of coffee and you spill it, what comes out? It's coffee, right? Why is that? Because coffee was what was in the cup. Now, in the same way, when we get tipped, when our lives get bumped by the unexpected or by difficulties, what comes out reveals our hearts. Reveals our hearts. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home. <laughs> often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own home with those relationships. Now, I think we know what kindness is. It's to be gentle, considerate, sympathetic, even those with those who are undeserving and unkind. In Ephesians 4.23, Paul admonishes all believers to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted and forgiving. Why? Because of the gospel, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So again, soaking our heart with the gospel will transform our attitudes and our responses. God's grace is what enables us to be kind. And then finally, that brings us to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. Now, being subject is the same verb we saw for submit in Ephesians 5 last time. The idea is that there's someone who is the leader, and there's another who is not the leader. (laughs) I know, it's pretty tricky. Okay, (laughs) well, that one who's not the leader, she's the follower. In this case, it's the wife. She lines her life up under the one with authority, her husband. And we talked about some of that last lesson. It's the big picture of how a wife's submission displays the relationship of the church to Christ. And what a privilege that is. It's willingly placing ourselves in submission to our husbands, yielding to him out of our love for Christ. 
Now, we've said all that last week, but it can still be hard to understand how this fleshes out. It's easy to have blind spots. Very easy to have blind spots. So on your notes, you've got a whole list of principles that describe being a submissive wife. They're just a start. You could probably make your own list that's twice as long, and you should give it to me because I'm sure it'll help me too. But take some time and look at those on your own this week. You could talk about them in in your discussion time if you like. But we're going to just read number one together. Don't forget that we do this. We submit because Titus 2.11 says the grace of God has appeared. God's grace is what produces submissive character. We need to understand that there's protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that young women understand this principle of submission. It is so contrary to the world's message. Older women need to understand and then help young women to understand that biblical submission makes for a healthy household and for a healthy church. And it honors God's word. Okay, so that brings us to number three on the outline. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Why do we as women need to be careful how we live? Well, it's because the world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. And it needs to see that the gospel is the truth that leads to godliness. That it frees us from every lawless deed. It purifies us. And it makes us, the church, a people for Jesus' own possession. Who are zealous for good deeds. See, the world needs to see that we belong to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Just think about that. Spending our life, pouring all our resources into malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. See, we used to be just like the world around us. But we've been saved. Now, how is the world going to know that? By living obediently to Titus 2, 3 through 5. Now, on your outline, you will see how all of those descriptions of who we used to be in chapter 3, verse 3, are contrasted with the godly character of chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. We were foolish, but the gospel enables us to be sensible. We were disobedient. But the gospel is displayed through submission to our own husbands. And chapter 3, verse 1, he's reminding all of the believers to be obedient, particularly to rulers and authorities. The gospel produces submission and obedience. We were deceived, but the gospel informs us so that we can be sensible and teach what is good and true. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, but the gospel has freed us and made us slaves of Christ so that we can be reverent and pure, free from enslavement to anything. We were spending our lives in malice and envy, but the gospel cleanses our hearts and our words from malicious gossip. It takes our focus off of what others have and do, and it replaces it with the joy of working in our own homes. We were hateful and hating one another, but in the gospel we love one another, beginning in our own homes. The gospel produces the Spirit's fruit of kindness in us. We are not once what we once were. And that is a powerful witness to the world that God's word 
is worth honoring. Now, this is a suggestion for one way you can use Titus 2 to shepherd your heart, because I find it hard for me to take in lists in the Bible like this. Maybe it's because I like to make them into to-do lists. I can They either kind of just become this fuzzy, bubbly cloud, and I never really dig in deep with any one of them, or I, I get focused on one or two. Um, something that I actually learned from uh, my husband is it can be really helpful to shepherd your heart to just systematically keep working your way through the list, pick one every day or one a week, one every couple days, and focus in and and pray over that particular attribute. Think about it in light of the gospel. Think about it in light of the bigger purpose in Titus. Examine yourself. Confess sin that you see in that area. Thank the Lord for where you see growth in that area because all of it is his work in you to draw you closer to himself and form the image of Christ in you. There's just so much at stake. It's our homes, our churches, and the honor of God's word. And so I want to finish with this quote from John MacArthur. He says, The world judges the gospel, which is the heart of the word of God, by the character of the people who believe and claim to be transformed by it. We have a tremendous privilege and responsibility to influence the opinion of the culture regarding God and his word through living out Titus 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that with you all things are possible, Lord. Lord, there's nothing in me apart from Christ that would understand this or love this or want this. But you are gracious, Lord. Every one of us that you've drawn to yourself and washed in your blood, Lord, you've given us a new heart. We pray, Father, that You would help us. Oh, Lord, help us to be women whose lives are transformed by your gospel, who do display this, Lord, whose homes are protected and whose church is strengthened. Lord, women who honor your word. Lord, women who give you glory by displaying that your gospel has the power to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.